This time on the Rolling with New York Mike podcast. We can demand the members of Congress, all 535 of them, follow the leather of the Constitution. We could do that. We could do that. And yes, there will be many interpretations and we'll have to keep fighting. But this is how it's done. Not with angry words, not with threats or worse. We use the brilliant tools our founding fathers gave us. We graciously accept the inevitable losses. We don't give up. We keep going forward with a positive attitude, a pleasant demeanor that made the belie, the grit, the determination, and the resolve that'll get this done. Welcome to Rolling with the most patriotic man I know, my husband, and now, his podcast, Rolling with New York Mike. Get on the ride. Hi, I'm New York Mike, and thanks for rolling with me. So we're headed to start. I'm leaving in the morning. We're going to ride. I'm meeting my buddy Robert Patrick, and we're going to meet in Victorville and get a cup of coffee in the morning, go from Victorville. We're going to ride. Oh, my God. It's going to be 110 degrees. <laughs> Victorville, Victorville will be about 85. And then we go from there to St. George. That's where we're going. So not that far. It's from here to Victorville is 150, 60 miles. Another 300 and something miles to St. George. But it's going to be hot. It's going to be hot. It, it, you know, we, we get to Victorville. We'll meet there like around 10 hang out, get filled the tanks, and it's going to be 11 when we leave there, 10, 30, 11. I don't know, man. It's, I'm, I'm thinking about it, and, oh, I, I don't know when it's going to hit 90. But <laughs> I don't know. Probably when we get to Peggy Sue's Diner. That's a landmark for you. That place is great. If you're going north on the 15, and you're going between here and Vegas, wherever you're going, Peggy Sue's Diner, if you haven't gone there, it's great. They have the best food. It's cool. It's a 50s kind of a thing. Breakfast, lunch. I don't know if I've ever had dinner there, but it's the best. Anyway, we're gonna, once we get past that, then the heat starts coming on. So Baker, woo, that's going to be 100. Oh, my God, it's going to be 100. I'm guessing 1231. We're going to have to stop. Now, that's the reason it's not as far as we ride often, yeah, 400 miles, four something, 450. But in the heat, we're going to have to stop. We go, here's how I figure it out. You stop, you get some Gatorade, make sure your electric lights are all, are all set up. Then you grab a bottle of water. If you're going to ride without a water bottle, it, don't even get started. If I had to give somebody some ideas, one of the key things, you got to have that with you. This time of the year, an absolute, it's always good to have, but this time of the year, it's just a must. So put the water bottle on the handlebar thing and ride. Depending on the heat, that water will go from cold, cold to warm in about 15, 20 minutes to absolutely almost hot in a half an hour or maybe a little less. So you got the water, you're going to get 50, 70 miles down the road, maybe, and then you're going to stop again. I mean, it, it, I'm sitting here. It's nice and cool. I'm in my backyard, just getting ready to leave. I'm almost finished packing. The bike's pretty well set up, the gear for the trip and all that. But it's hard to envision. I know intellectually 
what it feels like to ride in this kind of heat. I've done it so many times. But until you're in that heat, <laughs> you go, oh my God, I can't believe this. So I'm thinking about it and going, okay, we get to stop at the Peggy Sue thing. There's a Shell station across the way. And we go down the road from there. You're going to go to Baker. Now, I think it was a year, a year and a half ago, I did that. And it was unbelievably hot. I'd say way over 105. And just going from Peggy Sue's, I couldn't make it to Baker. So there was an exit, maybe 20 miles this side of Baker. And I just about made it. Luckily for me, I had enough water. Because when, I, when I'm riding with that water, I'll drink some. And then I'll spray some right on my body, on my face, chest. Boom, keep riding. So you got to make sure you get one in a big water bottle, especially for that leg of the trip. And so then you get to Baker. Take a little time, relax, another Gatorade if you need it, another fresh bottle of water, and then you're going to go at least to the Nevada state line. And from the Nevada state line, you're going to go all through Vegas. So that's another 50, 60 miles. Get to the other side by the speedway. You get by the speedway and you pull over and you got a gas station and you got a Denny's or something over there, some truck stop. And the whole process all over again. So as long as you can ride with a full fresh bottle of cold water, make sure when you stop, you drink some. So that's what we're going to do. That's the plan. And from the speedway, we should be able to make it to Mesquite. I think it's about 75 miles from Mesquite. You're going to go through the whole thing and through the Arizona Strip. That's about 35, 40 miles. And then you're, that's it. Boy, I just did the trip. <laughs> I wasn't as hot as I thought it'd be. So anyway, that's the ride for tomorrow. Then the next day we get up early. It's going to be early. Not just because of the heat. There's a lot of heat in St. George. And, and you go from St. George. Once you get, Hurricane is probably about, what, 15, 20 miles north of, of St. George on the 15. And once you start, you get past Hurricane, it gets cool. Not cold, not cool, cool. <laughs> It'll go down. The, the weather will go down to 75 and the speed limit goes up to 80. And that's just the way I like it. So that'll take us all the way to the 70. And we'll get the Beaver. Beaver's about, I don't know, 30 miles this side of where the 70 crosses the 15. We'll get off there and decide, are we going to go east on the 70 or go up to the 80 and go east on that. And that'll uh, really depend on things like weather conditions and anything else. We'll, we'll, we'll have it figured out. But either way, if we go in the 70, we go right through the mountains all the way across the Rockies um, and down to Denver where we pick up the 25 and take that north to Cheyenne. If we go up on the 80, take the 80, the 15 all the way north, Park City, Utah, and then it slides over. There's, there's some, I don't know, maybe 80 miles of nice kind of twisty highway where the 15 connects through, I don't know the names of the roads, the 60, the 70, 75, whatever it is. But it's a nice ride until you get to the 80, which is fine. And then you're on the 80 and boom, just take that straight across to Cheyenne. So that's a 700-mile sprint <laughs> that's our Saturday and then 
Sunday morning we wake up. I'm not sure. I've done this same ride from Cheyenne to either Rapid City or Deadwood. We're going to go into Deadwood. And I, I don't know how many times I've done it. 30 or 40 at least. I can't tell. I, I think it's about 300. I, from Cheyenne, you go to Torrington. And then from Torrington, there's another town. And then from that town, <laughs> you go to Newcastle. And then Newcastle, you go into. So now it's all about weather and traffic. And once you get to Cheyenne, I mean, from here to Cheyenne, there, there may be a lot of bikes on the road. 70 or on the 80, it's all good. When you get to Cheyenne and start heading through Wyoming on the back coast, then it gets a little, yeah, a little sticky, depending on how many bikes and how many trailers. Oh, my God. Over the years, so many trailers, man. Oh, and look, I got nothing against it. If you don't want to ride, I get it. People can trailer their bikes. I'm not going to call them names, you know. <laughs> but it's difficult to get around. So we are going to do that. I'm looking forward to it. And it's just just one of those things I'm really looking forward to. What I'm not looking forward to is talking about all this stuff that we need to talk about. So I, I, want, I want to talk about we're rolling to Sturgis as Nancy just, I guess she rolled back from Taiwan. Wow, right? I mean, this is a big deal. This is a big deal with lots of ramifications. And I'm going to get into that. I want to talk a little bit about the PACT Act first. It was signed. Signed and done. And I'm glad of it. We should all be glad of it. And I don't want to belittle the importance of it. It's really important. It's monumental. I was seeing some of the uh, comments. Joe Chenley wrote things on Twitter about Kelly Kennedy, a journalist who had been in the Army, and she started writing about the burn pits, which is, if you don't know, the, the PACT Act, it's setting aside money for the returning veterans uh, who've suffered tremendous injury, cancer, lung problems, I mean, all kinds of things from these burn pits. And the burn pits, I don't know if it's unique to Iraq and Afghanistan, if we did these kind of things before that, but in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they broke camp. They could have these big camps, and they took all the stuff that they had, classified information, any kind of things with chemicals, things they'd use up, whatever it was. they throw it in these burn pits. they just burn pits, and they, they'd burn it all. That's the way they got rid of the garbage and all the stuff that they had to get rid of, whatever it was. But these burn pits put out this tremendous toxic waste. And again, it's Kelly Kennedy. She started writing about it in 08. So it, it wasn't long after we got there, seven years, that we started seeing some of the damage. And people were starting to show the effects of this. Maybe in the beginning, people didn't realize what it was all from. But it soon became apparent it was from these burn pits. I don't even know if they've changed the way they, well, they, they're out of the, the, that theater of, uh, of war right now. But I don't know when they stopped the process of, of getting rid of all this stuff by burning it in these big pits. But 
the legislation was, they've been trying to get this done for years. They finally got it, working on it again for from 08. You're talking about 15 years now. They get it done. And I, I, I got to say, as I'm thinking about this, I, I, was, I was saying to someone today, look, I hope this is great for all the people that need the help that this money is supposed to go for, and it, most of some of it will. But I, I just randomly got, got out when I, I got a few texts from some friends of mine. I got back this morning because I'm leaving tomorrow, so I had an early appointment with the VA. Now, I'm a Vietnam vet. I, I, was, I was in a combat zone. I, I, was, I was in combat, and I chose not to ask for anything. For years and years, I said, yeah, you know what? I'm, I, I feel healthy. I'm good. I got back. I didn't get shot up, beat up. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, I actually got beat up pretty bad, but I can handle it. I'm a tough guy. I could deal with it, and I did. And I did it my way. It was just the way it is. I said, I'm just going to keep moving forward. I remember my dad after World War II. He was walking the beaches. I mean, he was in the South Pacific. His ship got bombed. I mean, all that stuff. But he also had to walk the beaches on the Jersey Shore. And he used to take me to the Barnegat Lighthouse and show me where they used to walk. And one of the main things, I'm sure there were a lot of reasons they were there, but you have to remember the German U-boats, the submarines, used to come up on the shore. And there were citizens, American citizens, would shine their headlights on the water so the German U-boats could see where the shoreline was. And one of the things they had to do was protect us, the country, from these German U-boats and them getting in, landing, bringing truth, whatever they were going to do, and also get rid of these citizens. I don't know what they did. We never talked about it. Did they break their headlights? Did they? Well, I have no idea. But that was... And he had some horrible foot problems. He couldn't walk. And I remember him going to the VA hospital in Coney Island. And he was there for quite a while. And he, and he went there periodically for treatment. So there's always been this. And I just was thankful. I didn't feel like I had the damage. I just didn't. So I got went through everything, whatever it was, I didn't do anything. And I'm telling my friends, and they're saying to me, Mike, didn't you go to the VA? No. All these years later, I'm going, Why? Then I got cancer. It's been over six years, and I got cancer, and I had major surgery, chemotherapy, went through the whole thing, and I took care of it. And then I met a guy that served in Vietnam. I knew the guy. We were talking, and he told me that he had had cancer like a year or so before. This is only about three years ago. And, and we, I said, yeah, I went through the cancer thing. He said, yeah, great. He says, did you get the VA rate you? I said, I don't go to the VA. He said, Mike, you got to go to the VA if you were exposed to Agent Orange and they connect that with anything you have. Da, da, da. Okay. And he told me all about the benefits and what he got. And then I said, yeah, okay. And then I put it off. And I go to the reunions with the Raven Facts and I go to the reunions with Combat Controllers and all that. And I got a lot of friends and I see them once or twice a year. And we, we, we're talking about this and it comes up. 
They go, Mike, you haven't signed up for the VA. You haven't got your benefits for the VA. No, no, no. So I have a good friend, Frank Cobb, picks me up. Not only did he set the appointment for me, picks me up 7 o'clock in the morning to take me two years ago to, to sign up for my VA benefits, which I got. And lo and behold, because I, I just never did it. They connected my time and service, went through the whole thing, took about six months, maybe a little more than that. And they found that I was exposed to Agent Orange, and I did have things that were clear and obvious, and, and I got my, my benefit package, and it was substantial. And I go through, and I look at, read the whole thing, I go, wow, I can't believe this. And I read the whole thing, and I look, and I go, wait a minute, there's no mention of cancer here. So I, I call my VA rep, and I tell him, and he says, that can't be right. So go through the whole thing, and he says, Mike, you got to see your oncologist and get a letter. I go to my oncologist. He gives me a letter to, to the VA, saying to the VA, listen, there's a probability that this is connected. If all these other things are connected, then this is connected, blah, 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 blah. Send the letter in. They deny it and ongoing. So the, my thoughts about this, and I'm saying at least... There's now coverage. It's just like the World Trade Center, what 9-11, all the Port Authority cops that I know, I know a lot of people, but the Port Authority cops for sure, because the World Trade Center was their headquarters, it was their home. There's 900 members of, of that police department, and 37 of them were killed. But there were also many of them who survived, but they were in the building. This was where they were housed. This is where they lived. And I mean, I mean... I remember two years later, I think it was, when I called my friend Mike Warnock, and I think I talked about this. I was on, I was riding a brand new V-Rod. I think it was 06. No, no, no. Had to be 04. And, and I'm riding a brand new, brand, brand new V-Rod across country to donate it on, on Sean Hannity's whatever he was doing at uh, Six Flags in New Jersey. And I'm riding across country to donate the bike. And it's July 4th weekend, and I call Warnock, and he answers the phone. He's like, yeah. I said, Mikey, I'm on the way. He goes, I'm, I'm working. I'm at ground zero. What? Yeah, I'm, I'm protecting these demonstrators, these kids who are stepping on the American flag. And I, I mean, I, you can't imagine what these guys went through. But they also went through it standing on that pile. And all those... The, the, the horrible things that we're talking about, that, that was all there. And this, this caused cancer and the same things, lung problems and skin problems and all kinds of things. And so many of the Port Authority cops, family members, volunteers, firefighters, I mean, they were all there all the time, day after day after day for months. And they were all exposed. And so John Stewart, when, when the money, the, the, the federal government gave the money to the families, took a few years, and then there was an expiration date. And John Stewart went and fought, did a great job of leading that charge with his celebrity and personality to extend the money for the 9-11 families. And that was great. I talked to my friends at the Port Authority cops, and they're disgusted with all the things that happened, the coverage that they didn't get, where the money went, 
where they feel it was where it never should have gone and all. But there is coverage that wouldn't be there if this didn't happen. And I, I guess if you're a John Stewart and you know your life is pretty well set you, and you want to do some good and you say, look, as long as I get the families, these 9-11 families, this whatever the amount is, 50 billion, 10 billion, I, I don't know what that, that was. I don't care if the money goes in the pocket of some corrupt officials or to their favorite whatever. As long as they take care, the family gets what they need to take care of. I get it. I get it. I, I, I do. I don't agree with it. But at the end of the day, you want to see these families. You want to see these firefighters, the cops. You want to see them get take care of. They deserve it. What, what they were exposed to, what they did. And that's it. So I understand it. But when we now, we, we get this pact act done. And it's like $800 billion. Yay! To, to make sure that any of our GIs, any vets, anybody who's serving, anybody who's there that was exposed to these burn pits has the, the money to pay. And look, it, it, it doesn't, no, nothing's going to pay back for the pain, for the damage. Your lifestyle's never going to be the same. You, you're going to pay a price in, in your physical well-being that's just deteriorated that no money can pay for. But for whatever they can they can get to give you the medical help and what you need is is so important so we got it and they took the vote in june i think it was june 16th and it passed and then they found the glitch and it it had to go back i believe it went back to the house of representatives to be fixed so they changed it but i guess they didn't change it and then it came back for a vote again and it had to get voted on in the Senate. And Senator Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania saw in the bill, when he read it, that there was $400 billion marked discretionary funds, which means it's not going for the PACT Act. It's not going for the people suffering from exposure to burn pits. We don't know where it's going to. It's discretionary. It's going to be spent at the discretion of, I don't know who, members of Congress? I, I assume that's what it means. So he said, wait a minute, we've got to change this. We're going to authorize $800 billion for the suffering, the damages, and any problems caused by people exposed to burn pits. We're going to fix that. And they voted, the Democrats said, no, we want that discretionary funding. So here comes John Stewart, and he's just going, wait a minute, I'm, I'm going to advocate for this thing to get done and signed. And why isn't it signed? It wasn't signed because 41 Republicans said, hey, you don't snooker us. Don't steal $400 billion and take it and so you could use it for your pet projects. Don't do what you did with the infrastructure funding. You get, you want a, a trillion, 200 billion, and 10% goes to infrastructure? Don't do the same kind of thing. And so that's what the Republicans were trying to fix it. 
So what happened? Stewart did a, a great job of PR, beat the devil out of the Republicans. And I railed against it. I, I talked about it in my last podcast. I, I do consider it stolen valor. Don't do that. Not in my name, buddy. Don't beat up on the Republic. You want to advocate to get it done, get the pact done? That's great. But when you use it to beat up the Republicans, which is what he done. But, okay, that's water under the dam. It's gone. So I asked my buddy Mark Navat. I said, Mark, because he was reading the bill. I said, let me know what it is, the, what was the final outcome of this? Where'd the money go? So this is what he sent me. He said, this is basically what I found. Factual information regarding the PACT Act. The act passing added $280 billion in new mandatory spending for veteran benefits. However, and this is the cynical part, the act also enables $400 billion in current law discretionary spending to be reclassified as mandatory spending. The authors of the PACT Act are thus playing a classic Washington shell game, moving $400 billion from one account to another, and by doing so, giving themselves a new $400 billion discretionary spending slush fund and doing it under the guise, or should I say disguise, of a veteran's health care bill. Even the House Democrats' bill, as reported out of the committee, did not include this budgetary gimmick. So that's it. And you know, listen, we got we got the funding, but you know, two hundred. I mean, I'm looking at two hundred eighty billion in mandatory spending for veteran benefits, and four hundred billion <laughs> discretionary spending. Yeah, it's 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 it hurts. But we needed, we really needed. That $280 billion, and that's the only way we can get it? Well, we got it. It's, um, it's sad. So I, I, I wanted to put that out there before I got on the road, close this chapter of, I don't know, it, it's, it's a shell game. And I, let me get back to Nancy. <laughs> it, it, it's so much of this stuff. It's, it's, it is. It's sleight of hand. But this is a big deal. And yes, there's a lot of ramifications, but let's start with giving Pelosi credit for having some big balls. Yeah, cojones, whatever, which is something to be admired when it's used right. Not that stopping in Taiwan amid all the controversy about China's reaction, but there's also a lot more to unpack here than Nancy's balls. Of course, Nancy's balls are often on display like when she stood behind President Trump at the State of the Union address, rolled her eyes, made faces throughout the speech, then stood up and ripped her copy of it in front of millions of viewers worldwide. Yeah, not just America, the whole world, all right? Ballsy for sure, but disrespectful at the very least. Despicable, juvenile conduct. By any measure, it was devices. Set a divisive, set an example by the Speaker of the House, third in line to the presidency, that something, an example we, we wouldn't want anyone to follow, and conduct that should have been condemned by her party, the entire worldwide press, 
and the mainstream media, and she should have been made to apologize to the president and to the nation. I mean, who condones this kind of behavior? Well, they did. All those who I just mentioned, they condoned it for sure. They set the tone with their acceptability for this to be repeated by others. Yeah, not too many others, though, have Nancy's sized balls. And hopefully the ones who do also have the brains and the maturity to be more respectful to their fellow countrymen, whether they voted for them or not, and respect for the office of the Speaker as well as that of the President and the dignity of Congress on such a celebrated national occasion as the State of the Union Address. So Nancy once more displays her courage, this time to do the right thing and and in a show of America resilience in the face of the communist, the Chinese Communist Party threats and Biden's timidity. And it should never have come to this. Our policy towards Taiwan is one thing, and it seems that Biden's treatment of Taiwan is another. Is this because he has some need to cooperate with China, the Chinese Communist Party, because of Hunter Biden or some of the other nefarious things that we all know have been going on behind the scenes? Well, I guess it's not so behind the scenes, right? Or is this just Biden being Biden, a timid, weak man with no real understanding of how to interact with bullies or how to demonstrate a willingness to join the fray and stand up when there is the slightest threat. It was the same thing with Russia before she invaded Ukraine, kowtowing to Putin, saying, eh, a little invasion, we'll call it an incursion, that's okay. Yeah, he did that. The United States of America, the president of the United it's hard to believe. And, and, and he gets away with it. I don't want to keep comparing this feckless government to Trump, but it's so clear that we were so much more respected. But more importantly, the world was so much less chaotic when, when Trump resolved to make America first and his unpredictability kept everyone else off balance. So we've got a speaker with balls, but not much in the way of brains and a president with neither balls nor brains. And the challenging party, the Republicans, just standing around waiting for November 8th. They're talking about 2024. Oh, yeah. They're talking about... I mean, you think that the, the most important thing to talk about are the polls. <laughs> That's all they talk about. Do Dems want to see Biden run again? I mean, really? Is that, is that what you're watching the news? Is that what you're waiting to hear these so-called experts on all these MSNBC, CNN, FNC, Fox News... Is Biden going to run again? Do they want him to run again? Who's saying they don't want Biden? Who would, who would take his place? This is what they talk about. Kamala, Michelle, Miss, uh, Miss Pete, <laughs> or maybe Tom Cruise, <laughs> Gavin. I don't know. I, I, it's, or who will the presidents run? Trump, DeSantis, Christy Nome, Nikki Haley. None of this has any real meaning. And no real actual purpose except to fill time and space on the various cable news outlets to draw eyeballs and advertisers, to create revenue and entertain 
masses of starry-eyed viewers who hang on every words of the, their favorite host on the various on the various opinions of the, the special panels. Well, we got a special panel. But usually it's the same five or six recycled contributors. Okay, it's not so bad to get opinions from professional pundits. I'm not saying it is. But you got to do something. You got to do something that's going to have some real consequences. Somewhere in the mix is valuable insight. It, it, it is into what's going on around us. It's all a veritable dust storm of information, all mixed messages at best. And in truth, the words spoken by our political leaders conflicting with the same person's words a few years back. How many times do they do this? You see, they say one thing, and then they show you what they said two years ago, three years ago, ten years ago. It's the exact opposite. The corroborating nods, you know, no matter what they say, they get corroborating nods from their fellow party members or polite, usually polite on television, condemnation by those of the opposition. Polite. Like, oh, yeah, that's not worry about. I mean, say it with some passion. Say it with some, like, accuse the son of a bitch of lying, of being hypocritical, of saying something in 2016 and then changing it in 220 and changing it again in 222. We see it all the time because we have all this stuff. We're able to record all this stuff. So say it. Make it make it something that's important because it is. It's like I keep saying, you got to give us a sense of urgency if you want to get the results that we want. The fact is, you listen to this stuff, we're all on our own. We're on our own, and that's okay. You got to figure it out. You know, I I I got to tell you, I, in school, I I was I was a terrible student, mostly because I didn't believe a lot of what the teachers were telling us, and mostly because I was bored and looking for more interesting things to do than listen to the rereading of textbooks. I mean, remember, you're sitting there, you're in the seventh grade. And you got your textbook out, and what's the teacher doing? She's reading the textbook a lot. And then she goes, okay, Johnny, you read the next paragraph. What? So I'd, I'd, I'd listen to this stuff, and I'm like, something's wrong here. So I'd go home. Now, my dad was working three jobs, going to school, trying to build a, a business, going through the hell of those days that everybody everybody says, oh, the great old days. Huh? I'm sorry. They made the best of what they had. Well, they one of the great old days. So, you know what he told me? He says, Michael, go read books. If you don't like what they're making you read, if you don't believe it, read books. And my dad, I mean, we didn't have much, but he had a library of all the classics, Plato, Socrates. Uh, I mean, he set a great example. He really did. And I compared what I read to what I was being taught, and I quickly realized I had to figure it out on my own. Everyone has an opinion, and even eyewitnesses can see the same things differently. That's, that's the way it is. So I, I would read, and, and I did read. I mean, let me tell you something. I'm talking about, as a kid, things like The Tropic of, the, 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 the Tropic of Cancer by Henry Miller. I mean, I read War and Peace. I read Dr. Zhivago. The Merchant of Venice. I read Charles Dickens, and I oh my God, uh, I, I I never liked 
I, I don't think, I think I, I, what, Oliver Twist? I mean, it was like, but, I mean, but I, I was reading these books. I read Plato, Socrates. I read Edith Head. Was it Edith Head? Yeah. She was the one who wrote all these books about Greek mythology. My, I mean, that was one of my favorites. Then I read everything, everything by Harold Robbins. A Stone for Danny Fisher. Just all these books. He was my other favorite. Homer. I mean, I, that was my ultimate favorite. Homer. The Odyssey. The Iliad. I used to read short stories by Guy Diedemar Parson. He wrote hundreds and hundreds, these great short stories with these 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 great moral tones to them. And, and what did I learn from all that? I did. I read all this stuff. Books by everything that Thomas B. Costain wrote, I read. I'm trying to think of some of the other authors. I used to read, you know, if I read an author and I liked, and it was all historical novels and philosophical, all this stuff. And I'm reading it, trying to understand. And the one thing I got, it was all chaotic. It was all over the place. Here was this opinion, that opinion. There was no, yeah, if you stayed with one person, one philosophy, and, and went all the way up and down with it, fine. But if you did what I did, this eclectic kind of, I grabbed this one and that one, I figured it out. I, honestly, I, what I learned after was that contradicting themes and messages behind so many entertaining novels, fiction, nonfiction, and in between. The things that are based on real history, but they say it's history, but it's kind of based on history because you're going to read something from somebody else about the same thing. It's going to have a different perspective. So it's based on history. We all have to interpret whatever the so-called facts are. Separate truth from fiction as best we can. Recognize our own biases, okay, because we're going to put them in there. And when appropriate, accept them as valid as anyone else's. So blindly following anyone because they wrote a book or graduated from Harvard or wherever gives too much credit to others when it's often undeserving. So check your source, check their facts, take it all in with that proverbial grain of salt. You know, Fauci isn't the only credentialed merchant of fiction. I mean, it's a perfect example. So the purpose of this rant is to highlight all the conflicting opinions and information out there, put it in perspective. And at the end of the day, we're Americans, a very unusual breed of cat in this human race whose rallying cry is freedom, but who finds it very hard to define when all it is is our right, our God-given right to define our beliefs, not according to what the government, those who govern us, who govern us, tells us, tells us, as in communism and all its forms, authoritarianism, despotic, tyrannical, totalitarian, all that's the governments who dictate how you think, what you can and can't say, where your rights come from, the government versus our nation, where our rights come from our creator. And the people are in charge of the government, not the other way around. Of course, that doesn't happen unless we, the people, step up and take charge, not relinquish our responsibility. Our weapon is the vote. We can't relinquish our responsibilities to term limits. We can't just not vote. We can't just accept what the popular people say. We have to look at it 
and make up our own minds. It's up to us to have that kind of confidence. When we relinquish that responsibility to term limits or find other ways to surrender, like saying, oh, my vote doesn't count anyway. It's rigged. They'll steal it again. You can't do that. We can define our beliefs for ourselves, but to see the things we believe in made possible, we have to do our part, each and every one of us. We could do this if we choose, but it takes confidence and initiative, a belief in who we are. We have a constitution that we can enforce. We can enforce it. We can demand the members of Congress, all 535 of them, follow the letter of the constitution. We could do that. We could do that. And yes, there will be many interpretations and we'll have to keep fighting. But this is how it's done. Not with angry words, not with threats or worse. We use the brilliant tools our founding fathers gave us. We graciously accept the inevitable losses. We don't give up. We keep going forward with a positive attitude a pleasant demeanor that made the belie, the grit, the determination, and the resolve that'll get this done. And we could defeat any enemy. All these people talking about communism and the millennials this and the Gen Z that and this, that's defeatism. That's not going to gain this whole. You got to believe in something. You got to believe in yourself before anything. That's what this country was founded on. And by the way, when I say this country, it wasn't you know, the, the, the whole, even half the population. Some say it was like 10%. Some say it was a third. I've heard some people say it's 3%. But their revolution was fought by such a small percentage of the population. But those are the ones that believe. Everybody else is just confused out there. Oh, my God. We're so dependent on the British. Oh, my God. We... We can't go against, they're the big, I mean, what we're up against today is nothing compared to what they were up against in 1775, 1770, 1760. And six, back then, without anything near what we have today, we have it. They gave us the Constitution. They gave us this great country. And they said it's yours if you could keep it. That's what we've got to do. We've got to keep it. That's why I love getting out there, getting out there and riding through this country. Because I see people every day going to work, believing in their, their, their themselves and their family and their country. They vote for the local sheriffs, for their local representatives. They believe that their vote counts and the people that they vote for are going to respect them as their constituents and do the right thing and go to work for them. And I love that. But we've also got to learn that there's got to be a substantial number of us who are, who are willing. And there always has been. I, I think there always will be. But you're always preaching to the choir. You always have to preach. That's who you preach to. The choir is always there. You just encourage them to sing louder. That's it. We need a louder voice. We need more people. And we always got to be out there. You always got to be the cheerleader. You always got to be the one to help others around you. Let them know how much you believe so they can believe. That's what it's all about. Make up your own minds. Learn. Tell your kids to learn. Send them to school. Not to be brainwashed, but to stand up. When the parents saw what's going on during COVID, when the American people 
saw what was going on when they had to stay home and everything was done on Zoom and they were they saw what they boy this there's been a mini revolution of the people in this country so whoa wait a minute this is wrong and we're doing something about it and i love that about america because that's that's our freedom that's what freedom is your ability my ability to question what this government is doing and to demand that this government listen to me how do i do it by gathering enough people all around me that we have the majority when it comes out to vote. That's what the other side's doing. And and they think they're right just like we think we're right. Like I said, it's a dust storm of ideas. Everything is so confusing. You've got to cut right through that dust storm. You've got to clear it. Clear your face shield. You're riding through the dust. You've got to clear that shield so you can see what's what's in front of you. That's what you got to do. And what's in front of me when I ride... When I leave here and I go through the desert and I go through the heat and I go through the mountains in Utah and then if I go through if I go through the mountains and ride through Colorado I'm seeing nothing but the beautiful landscape of a beautiful country and wonderful people and when, and and when when I get when I get to you know the Newcastle Wyoming and I and I get down to Main Street and in Deadwood City and places like Spearfish I mean. This is, this is America. It's so wonderful. It's, it's like Petrina's dad says, the best way to arrive anyplace is on the back of a Harley Davidson motorcycle. <laughs> and, and I get to do that. And I get to do that a lot. And you know, that is the best way to arrive anyplace you go, especially in this country. But also, that's true anyplace around the world. You ride into town. <laughs> you go into town in Paris or London or Berlin. You pull up on your Harley Davidson back to the curb and get off. You're going to have a crowd looking at you and, and they're going to be applauding because you represent America. And that's what we do. We represent the greatest country on the face of this planet. And I, I just, I'm going to be on the road. I'm going to wing the podcast. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I don't have the time, the hours to write things down, to take notes and do stuff when I'm traveling. We'll be traveling for a few weeks two or three, but I'll be able to get the podcast in. It may not, it just may not be as clear, concise, and, and wonderful. <laughs> I laugh. I know. I know. I drift here and I drift there and I do a lot of that stuff. But that's because I love what I do and I appreciate you listening. So thanks. You're listening to Rolling with New York Mike and we are rolling and we're rolling right through the country. And by the way, we're going from Sturgis to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and then back to Wyoming. So we'll be on the road a lot, and uh, and you'll be hearing from me a lot. I'm New York Mike. Thanks for rolling with New York Mike. And New York Mike is out. Thanks for listening to Rolling with New York Mike. Listen, follow, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to keep this podcast rolling.